Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. And today we are talking about sleep help. So one of the things that you need to know about me versus Juliet is I have something, what do you call it? The gift. Which means I can lay down anytime, anyplace and black out. However, that's Often not... Often your quality of sleep is bunk. That's right. For a long time, we discovered ages ago that magnesium was one of the ways that you could easily and safely and non-addictively improve your sleep. We started with magnesium aspartate and that's old school. And then it's evolved a little bit. Well, the kids of Momentus have a new form of magnesium, magnesium L3 and 8, which crosses the blood brain barrier. And what ends up happening <laughs> is it literally makes me feel like I've taken a roofie. <laughs> can I say that? I don't know if you can say that. This in combination with their elite sleep, which again was support for athletes who are going to get tested, who can't take sketchy things, who can't have their performance interrupted the next day. We're seeing people hit the brakes any way they can. They're using alcohol, they're using THC, they're using Ambien to try to knock themselves out and get better sleep. Start with this magnesium from Momentus, stack it on Elite Sleep, try it for a week, and let me know what happens because you are going to feel narco-sleepy. You can try it out by going to thereadystate.com slash Momentus and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding. But in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre and post workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. Julie Fouché is a former four-time CrossFit Games athlete and family physician practicing precision medicine. She launched the Pursuing Health podcast back in 2015 while transitioning from CrossFit competition to being a full-time medical trainee. Based on what she saw in her medical training and CrossFit career, she realized her passion and unique position to help patients maximize their health through lifestyle, and she's committed to transforming primary care delivery to achieve this mission. She's now working with Wild Health, which takes a comprehensive look at your genetic analysis, laboratory results, microbiome, and lifestyle factors in order to craft a plan that fits your health, fitness, and longevity goals. Enjoy our chat with Julie Fouché. Hey, Ready State listeners. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. 
Julie, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We all three have been, we've had some wild times together. I mean, we have been to the CrossFit Games at the same time. We've been in in the Bahamas together. We were just recently, (laughs) we were just recently in Florida hanging out at the Go Ruck World Championships. You and I run into each other all the time, sometimes in these fitness spaces. What are you up to these days? And uh, just kind of give people the the background of where the Dr. Fouché is, and then we'll back into who you are and how you got here. Actually, funny you bring up the Bahamas because I recently have reacquainted myself with the Bahamas. I've been there (laughs) twice already this year and um, realized how much I love it. So... Thank you to Reebok for introducing me to the Bahamas. (laughs) You know, they invited us back after the first time we were all there together at like a training camp. And uh, Jill and I were like, I'm not sure the middle-aged starettes belong at this elite training camp. But thanks for inviting us. Thanks for inviting us. Hey, any excuse to go to the Bahamas, you take it. Also, I think if we lived on the East Coast, we would go way more often because it was really warm and really lovely and so fun. But it's always a toss-up. It's like, well, Hawaii or Cabo or Bahamas is way farther for us. That's the secret. I think it's for for me on the East Coast, it's so convenient and easy to get there. But if you've got Hawaii that close, then I mean. Okay, so you are Dr. Julie Fouché. What is your background? How are you practicing right now? Tell us, because you, I think of you always as an athlete first and sort of this side hustle gig you have as a physician second. But kind of tell us what you're doing currently in practice and then we'll get to sort of your take on modern medicine. So yes, I was an athlete first, but I ended up going to medical school. So I was while I was competing in the CrossFit Games, I went to medical school, became a family physician. And for the last year plus, I have been working for a company called Wild Health, which is a precision medicine practice. What does that mean? What's, what's precision medicine? Yeah. So the precision medicine is the idea that every person is unique. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Every person is unique. And we look at each individual and all of the data and what makes someone unique. We can come up with a personalized plan that helps you to really optimize your health. Or if it's, you know, treating a disease, we can come up with a treatment that you are most likely to respond to. If we look at what makes you, you, as opposed to what most of modern medicine does, which is put everybody into the same bucket and do these large randomized controlled trials, which are important, but you know, there's a lot of individual variation, in how each person responds to different treatments, different stimuli. And so we have the perspective that we can really customize an approach to help someone optimize their health or resolve their symptoms or, you know, reverse chronic disease by taking a very personalized approach and using all the data that we have from, you know, genetics to labs to wearable data, any other biomarkers, someone's personal goals, the environment they're living in, you know, anything that we can get our hands on. So I have about a thousand questions about what you just said, but I just want to go a little back, back in time because I do think it's so interesting, you know, most professional athletes, and and I don't want to make overly broad generalizations, it would seem sort of our athletes and then often continue to be athletes, maybe even until they get injured. And then they're like, okay, now I'm going to figure out what my next life plan is. And you obviously were not that athlete. You were like, I need to have another plan. And I'm not sure, I guess I'd love to know, did you sort of see the future and you're like, I'm not going to be able to be a professional athlete my entire life and I want to have another career? What sort of drove that decision? Because I do think it's pretty unusual. And um, it seems like, you know, most cross CrossFit athletes sort of 
wait until they retire. And then they're like, this is the next thing I'm going to do, which is fine. No judgment. But it was interesting that you're like, I'm going to go to actual medical school and train to be a professional CrossFit, CrossFit athlete, which is seriously takes some time management. What was your sort of thinking there? What motivated that? Well, I wish I could say that I had this very elaborate thought out plan of how this was all going to unfold, but I didn't. I think I really got very lucky with the timing. Like a lot of things, you know, the way that a lot of things go when I started CrossFit was 2009. So, you know, it was only the first few years of the CrossFit Games. There was no Reebok. There were no big sponsors. And I had no idea, one, that I was even going to go to the CrossFit Games. I started doing CrossFit just for my own fitness and health. And then a year later, found myself there in 2010. And at that time, I was already well down my path of pursuing medical school. So that summer of 2010, when I went to the CrossFit Games, I was also doing an internship at the NIH and I was submitting my medical school applications. And then right after the games, I was doing you know, medical school interviews. So I was already pretty far down that path. You know, I'd, I'd done the MCAT, all that stuff down that path. And then after the 2010 games, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Of course, I'm going to do it again. So I just kept going. And then when I started medical school, I knew that it was possible for me to do both during that first year of medical school. I knew it was going to be really hard. And it most certainly was, I would say to date, maybe the hardest year of my life, maybe the second, I don't know, there's a close tie there for the runner, but it was tough. And, um, but I'm glad I did it. And then was able to sort of, you know, take a year off during second year, I did some extra research and spread that out so I could compete a little bit in med school. So it was definitely a year by year process, decision making process. But I was really glad that I was able to do both and continue along that path. Because I think if I had started CrossFit earlier and it had been a bigger sport, I may not be a doctor right now because I may have just continued with that for several years. In professional cycling, in a lot of sports, we consider the podium is top five, not top three. So you have been on the podium. You have been yeah. on the podium four <laughs> times. It's really important because the the depth and talent is really good. Sometimes when we only do one, two, three, kind of this Olympic model, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't really tell the whole story because any given day, sometimes any one of the best athletes can be on the podium. So I like to think of you as a four-time podium, podium. I like that. person. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, most, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> want, I think you should just sort of rebrand, rebrand around that's right. that. And, just, and I will say that you've been like on, a, you have been on the, the, the crappy podium where you just get a silver medal or a gold medal or a bronze medal three times or two times. So <laughs> you did, you did find there too. Just real quick. There have only been a few athletes who've been in grad school and done sort of professional school and this at the same time. And it's, it's really difficult to to do both well. And there is an old saying in, around our house, which is, if you want something done, give it to a busy woman. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. <laughs> this is why Juliet is the busiest woman on the planet because she gets stuff done. But I just want to give a special shout out to Taylor Williamson, who has just finished her PA degree and is games, which is super awesome. How did being in this nascent, emergent sport and being a high-level athlete and even having a, a stumble with an Achilles, how did that influence sort of and change what you're experiencing? You were, went to medical school and part, like from the Cleveland Clinic. Like it's no slouch medical school. Medical school. How did the, your experience as an athlete begin to shape what you thought physicians could do or what medicine wasn't able to do? That's a great question. So when I set out to go to medical school, 
I was very naive to begin with. I had no idea how awful our healthcare system was or really how sick we were as a country. And so it was all a very eye-opening process and I'm glad that it all kind of happened at the same time. But when I set out to go to medical school, I thought that I would become a super specialist. I thought, you know, I have always been very much a, a perfectionist. I did gymnastics growing up. Like, let me just understand one part of the body really, really well and know everything in great detail that I can about that. And as I started school and was also, you know, heavily involved in the CrossFit community, it just became very apparent to me that we were not really creating health with our healthcare system and people were just getting sicker and sicker. So even in my first year of med school, I was spending time in primary care offices and you get, you know, 15 minutes with someone every three or six months with a chronic disease. They've got maybe high blood pressure, maybe high cholesterol, maybe some prediabetes. And you talk to them, you know, of course, as the first year med school student, the preceptor is like, go in there and talk to them about nutrition and exercise because they were like, I'm too busy to do that. <laughs> so, so I'm in there and I'm, you know, I'm really determined. I'm like trying to teach people how to do burpees in the office. And I think they're really getting it. And then, you know, of course, you don't see them for six months. So, you know, it's highly unlikely that they're actually going to make much behavior change from that one interaction. And on the flip side, you know, I'm seeing what we all know is true in CrossFit affiliates where people are dramatically reversing chronic diseases, coming off medications, gaining confidence, all the amazing th things that we see happening every day. And it just became very obvious to me that, you know, the doctor's office is not the setting to create health. It's, it's the, the setting outside the doctor's office where people are living, where they're gathering, the communities they're spending their time in. And so I just became so passionate about that, that I realized, you know, and as I started spending more time in the hospital and seeing people on the tail end of this, where they're really suffering from, you know, really difficult diseases because that could have potentially been prevented by behaviors 20, 30 years ago, I just became very passionate about wanting to prevent and wanting to take care of the whole person. And that's what led me to family medicine and to really realize that my, you know, role in CrossFit and competing in the CrossFit games was not just as an athlete, but it was really a platform for me to be able to eventually hopefully impact people's health on a larger scale. I obviously am a huge fan of the notion of sort of individualized medical care and health care. What do you what do you think is the sort of like the thing that is like the most exciting about what's going on in in your practice at Wild Health or sort of in this universe of people that are saying, okay, our traditional medical model is not working that well. You know, you mentioned a bunch of things earlier, wearables, genetics. I mean, you know, where do you think that, you know, individualized health is getting the most bang for its buck? Or is it not one thing? Is it really all those things together? Great question. I think it's a lot of things. I think at the core, though, the most important is the relationship. I think that you, a big problem is that people just don't have the time and they, patients are not being heard. They don't have a relationship with their doctor anymore. And so I think that's one of the things that, you know, when you hear about functional medicine practices or integrated practices or precision medicine practices, I think the ones that are most successful are the ones that really allow for relationship to, to be developed. So, you know, for us, we have our initial appointment is almost an hour and then our follow-ups are 30 minutes, which just allows us a lot more time to develop that relationship. 
How how can I possibly lie to you about my drinking and smoking if you get to know me? That's really tricky. <laughs> Very tricky. Yeah, because you can't, I mean, you have to develop relationship and you have to have trust in order to be able to, you know, be honest and get to the truth about whatever these health concerns are. You think about, you know, symptoms that you may be dealing with are extremely personal. And so having a, a place that feels safe to talk about that, I think is important. So that's the the core, I think. But then beyond that, to me, is this approach of one, getting to the root cause of symptoms. So not being happy with just saying, okay, you've got a headache, let's take some ibuprofen and make it go away. Let's try to figure out instead, why are you having those headaches and addressing those, which are usually root, usually not, not always, but often rooted in lifestyle, nutrition, sleep, stress, things like that. And then from there, I think that the personalization, the data that we're starting to have now in terms of what we're learning about genomics and what we have in terms of wearable data, that those things are allowing, they're just much better tools for behavior change. I've seen people make behavioral changes based on that data because it's their own data and it's personal and they can then make a change and then they can retest and see the improvement. And so I think that's where those things come in as being very valuable. Let me push back for a second because one of the things that we've seen in my field, right, our little universe of physical therapy is we're the same thing is that people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't get like 30 minutes with this physical therapist that I don't know, I have no relationship with every two weeks and you give me these handouts and, you know, it's really just about, it's, I'm like, Hey, look, maybe I try to tell people, think about your physical therapist in that situation as like a first responder, right? It's a, it's an initiation. Like it's an emergency. We're going to triage. But the reason I say that is a lot of times physios aren't, the system is set up against the provider to be able to give the kind of care. And, and when I made that shift, I was, I ended up being a lot more empathic towards people who were being double booked and triple booked and not getting the follow-up and had no resources to develop the kind of care. And then they sort of have student loan debt and real sort of needs of like meeting that, you know, having rent and making, having 401k and, and suddenly there's no space or time to kind of really practice the way you want to practice. So you end up shaping your practice and you become bitter and disenfranchised and you leave the profession. Do you think physicians are in the same way and it's the system? Because if every physician had an hour, would we have better well, medicine? Well, and also, can I just add to that? Like, I have to think, and this is an assumption, that 99% of people who go to medical school go because they want to help people. They don't start they like off. working with people. Yeah, they want to help. They want to work with people. They feel like it's, you know, that they actually are sort of mission driven to do something like that. I think we're, and, you know, there may be like 1% of them who are like, I want to be an anesthesiologist and be loaded. But like, I have to think the vast majority of people who go to medical school actually want to help people. And often I think find themselves in this system, you know, where they can only see people for 15 minutes. And, and, and you know, I want to set this up. This is the long way we're in the barn because you all are creating an alternative to that model. But I want to know how you think we can reform the whole model. <laughs> I mean, that's really the long conversation. First, we have to show that there's this valuable thing that works and that actually is possible and that people can have better health outcomes. We stomp people in the face with health outcomes. And then we can come around the corner and say, okay, how do we back into a larger system of this? So anyway, do you feel like physicians, are you talking to more physicians who are feeling the same way? Like, what are you practicing? How can I do that too? Yes, I totally agree. It is a huge problem. And especially, I'm, I would say, more surrounded by physicians in primary care, but I, I've 
see it even in medical students. I think so many medical students, like you said, go in for the right reasons. They really want to help people. And they even just getting a couple years in and seeing what it's really like become, you know, people have a hard time and, and it's not just a few, it's a lot. And PT too. Yeah. And it's, and then it's hard because it's also this question of, you know, something I've wrestled with is why are you doing what you're doing? And when you get so far down, you know, well, I'm already in med school, I'm halfway done, I might as well finish, I might as well do a residency. Now I've got student loan debt. And so, you know, then it's why are you doing it? Are you doing it because it's what you want? Or because you think that's what's expected, or you don't want to quit or whatever, but that's a whole nother conversation. But you know, even my colleagues that I graduated with or that were in, you know, neighboring, you know, family medicine classes to me are a year or two out and they're switching careers, either, you know, going, coming out of the system and doing something like direct primary care, or they're just really struggling in the current system and trying to figure out what to do. So many of them would have gone into another type of practice right out of residency if they could, but had, you know, young families, student loan debt, felt like they didn't have the opportunity to do that, or it was just too risky. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the thing that most, especially in family medicine, that's where my, my heart is, is it's, especially those doctors, those are the ones who really care about people and just want the long-term relationships and are certainly not doing it for the money. And all they really want is time with their patients and to be able to do the right thing for their patients. But the way that the system is set up, it doesn't really allow for that, which is really frustrating. And I agree with you completely that I think we're in this stage where, you know, we realize that doctors are burned out, PTs are burned out, patients are not happy. Other models are emerging like direct primary care and concierge and these cash pay practices. And it's a difficult time because that makes this better care, less accessible to people who maybe are not able to pay out of pocket. But I agree with you, Kelly. I think that we have to prove that the outcomes are better. And then I would hope that that would then result in this type of care being covered for everybody. You know, one of the things that I think is never addressed, because it is easy to blame the system and then secondarily blame the people who are still in the system for whatever reason, as you say, it's real valid to, I have to pay my mortgage and, you know, my kids got to go to school and we have to eat. But one of the things that I heard long time ago from one of our master clinicians was if you want great patients or good outcomes, choose good patients, right? And what I saw, for example, when we really opened up our own clinic, we had people who were so motivated and paying out of pocket and were due 100% of everything that we talked about and agreed to. And so we had very motivated people who were empowered or had agency or, and I don't want to say that there's those who are without agency or, you know, awareness, but a lot of people come out of a system where they have never realized that they're in control or how much control or agency they have. How do we begin to shift to say to people, look, it's not your doctor's fault that you are struggling. You have to make these behavior changes. How can we help? How, how do we begin that conversation so we start shifting loci of control back to patient so that the physician or the practitioner or provider is a collaborator, not the patriarchy? I think that, that a lot of that comes to putting the, the information, like you said, empowering patients and putting the health information back in the hands of patients. I think in so many of these conventional systems, it's getting better where, you know, you have your online EMR and you can access your information, but... EMR is electric medical record. Yes. You go, you know, your doctor tells you, yep, your blood pressure and cholesterol look good and we'll see you next year. 
but putting more of that information back in the hands of patients and educating patients on what this all means. I mean, I think we tend to be in this bubble of fitness of people who genuinely care about their health and their fitness and their longevity, but the majority of the population probably doesn't really care. Like they've got bigger things that they're more concerned about than their health and their health is much farther down the list. And so it's hard to appeal to them or help them to be motivated when it's not, you know, it might not be something that affects them for 10 or 20 years. And so I think that comes down to education. And I think it comes down to more, you know, public health, like making, setting up our society in a way where it's easier to make the decisions that are going to be better for our health long-term. Design. That's Bruce Mao. Julie and I have been talking about, you know, ultimately I was a geography major and I got into the cultural geography department, this interaction between people and environment and really shaping an environment so people don't have to make another decision that they're just, you're encouraged to walk and the whole design of the place is for you to walk more. And it's not like a decision that you have to make or some willpower you have to summon after working two jobs and being a single parent. I mean, you just, we have to reshape society. And I feel like we have these thumbs, we can do it. You know, we don't need to have sodas on campus at school. I mean, the battles that Julietta's have in our, our middle school about like an <laughs> Izzy is still a soda. <laughs> you know, like a bean burrito is not a good source of protein. You know what I mean? Like, you know, We could do better. You know, so I think that that's interesting. You're sitting on this cusp of this brand new field. And I love that you're a generalist coming into this. Like my father is a family practitioner. I feel like you're the hyper generalist. You have to understand all the dirty aspects of people's environment and their life and their connections. You don't get to just focus on liver enzymes. Although you're also a liver enzyme ninja. I don't mean to, to you know, <laughs> belittle that. But Which, by the way, was the thing that I thought, the reason why I thought I didn't want to go into family medicine, because it sounded a little scary to me. You have to know a little bit about everything. But that's that's also CrossFit, right? It's You have got to be pretty good at everything, but, you know, not an expert in any one thing. You're sitting on this interesting cusp of this brand new field of medicine where it's a expert clinicianship is compromised between patient and, and clinician where you're all discussing a plan and I'm collaborating and where are you seeing the most opportunity sort of now that you're up and going with your company and your physician and you have this experience as, as being a, on the pointy end of the stick as an athlete, where are the opportunities in the next year or five years? Like where are you like, well, I'm so excited. I'm going over there. Is it, you know, wearables? Is it? Is that what Genetics. it is? I really think that the opportunity is still in bringing this type of care to in-person communities. So we're all tele- virtual right now. We're all telemedicine. We're getting amazing outcomes with our patients. You know, we have health coaches, doctors, patients. We're using wearables. All of that is very exciting. We're getting great outcomes. But I think for this to be you know, sustainable. And as we've all seen through the pandemic, how important those in-person interactions really are and the community really is. I think long-term, I would love to see this be something that's implemented in communities, you know, in CrossFit affiliates, in churches, in places where people gather because health behaviors are contagious and it's a lot easier to do these and to be sustainable with them if the people around you are also doing them. Health behaviors are contagious. I was just talking about that today on another podcast where I was saying, you know, it's definitely easier if you go to dinner and everyone orders food, 
then you order food. And if everyone else orders things that doesn't look like food, you're like, give me some of that non-food. So one, one little story for you. I, um, my mom is 77 and she's awesome and fit. And, you know, she's, she was talking about how she struggles to sort of find friends who want to, she loves to hike and walk and like, that's her major source of exercise. And she's struggling to kind of find people to do it with. And I said, mom, you should start a hiking club. You know, I have a mountain bike club. You should start a hiking club. And, and it's just every, you know, it's a, it's at a set day and time. And you can tell, a, you know, a wide range of your friends that every every Wednesday at 10 a.m. you're going to be at this place and you're going to go for a hike. And it's a set thing. Nobody has to plan. It's sort of a community function. And she did it. And she has been like blown away by how successful it's been. And it's just this little thing where it's like, these, you know, women all of who are in their mid to late 70s like she is are, you know, consistently meeting and and obviously they're getting great exercise in the form of hiking, but it's also this big community function. And then they're motivated. I, th- I think what motivates them to come back is partly the exercise, but probably more the friendship and community. And so it's just it's the such 30, a huge It's the piece. 31 minute effort, efforts they had in zone five. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, it's not what it is. I think yeah. you're you're on that. One of the things that I would like to know is if you could go back in time and tell athlete, super athlete, super Julie, what would you change about your behaviors now? Because one of the things that I think it's so difficult for us to say, don't do this because maybe 20 years from now, it'll be a problem. That's such, it's always complicated for Juliet and I, when we're talking with people about their movement health to tell them, Hey, I think that that, you know, choice you're making is less effective today and may not be serve you forever. And we're going to have that conversation eventually. I don't say good and bad. I'm just like, that's less effective and there are more effective strategies. So what would you go back in time and say, man, I would love you to do this more effective strategy because I think you could go faster and you could do better and get more work done. And I can't say you would have better abs, but because that's not possible, but you know. Well, is this just an opportunity for you to talk? talk about no how no not that, not that no 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 i didn't mean that i meant yeah, well, yeah i know i was too i was like are you baiting her this is a great it's a true example with my achilles i think it was the first time that we met you were doing your seminar at hyperfit in ann arbor and you pointed out to me hey you've got this big haggling deformity on your heel and you better take care of that and i was like oh yeah sure kelly i'll take it and i don't know what you're talking about you were fitter and well, stronger. Plus also, I mean, like, how old were you at this point? Probably invincible age. 20, 21, maybe. Yeah, right? Yeah. And I will say I had, you know, I had plantar fasciitis at times. I had like my Achilles would get sore to the point where I wasn't doing box jumps very often, rebounding box jumps very often, only like in competition. So I knew there was a problem and I would think that I was taking care of it, but I wasn't really taking care of it. And then, you know, my Achilles ruptured, which I also found out now that I'm part of Wild Health and have looked at my DNA, that I also have a SNP, which puts me at higher risk of Achilles tendon rupture. So, you know, maybe had I known that and you had made the comment, maybe I would have said, wow, I really need to pay attention to this. But I I probably wouldn't have. What did you learn about, because you high-level gymnast, superstar, it's easy to just be a mutant. Like I have a lot of friends who are just mutants and things hurt, but they can just get through their mutantdom. When your body, when that happened to you, that must have been the first time ever that your body was, you were like, what the hell, body? Why did you let me down? I'm doing, I'm working so hard and I'm here for us and you let me down. What was that experience like? And how did that change you going forward? Did it? 
Well, I wish that was the first time that that had happened. It wasn't. I actually had, I mean, there was a few times where that happened, but the first time actually was when I was in high school and I was in gymnastics and I broke my foot at the beginning of my junior year season. And so I was out the whole rest of the season. And that was devastating because that was my first, you know, gymnastics was my life. The idea of being out for a whole season was like the end of the world. And so that I'm very grateful now that I had that experience because I think it taught me, you know, the mindset of, you know, things happen that you don't necessarily have control of and it's up to you to make the most of the situation and you have control over your attitude. And so through that, I learned to really try to make the season the best I could for my teammates and be there for them. And I think that really helped me and prepared me for when I actually did tear my Achilles in 2015 to, you know, respond to it the way that I did. And I think overall for me, it was a very it wasn't the outcome I was looking for, but it was a very powerful experience. So, yes. The reason I bring it up is, you know, I had a knee replacement 18 months ago. Told me arthroplasty. It wasn't replaced. It's still my knee. But I had an arthroplasty. It really changed. It made me a better clinician. It made me more empathic, but also a lot gnarlier. Like, I was like, you will not have the good outcomes unless you manage these things because – you know, I, I was sort of maybe softer on some of the behaviors because I was like, You'll t now I'm just not soft on those behaviors. I mean, that really did focus my, my brain about like, you know, we can't mess around with this. So you've mentioned a few times genetics, and I'm always really curious about genetics in part because I feel like it is always, you know, changing and the, the amount that we're learning about genetics is like changing on a daily basis. Kelly and I have both had our genetics tested and learned some really inf interesting information. But, you know, even as of like two or three years ago, a physician we worked with out of Stanford, he's like, look, there's really only like seven or eight things that we know genetically that you can actually sort of do anything about that are sort of actionable pieces of genetics that are available to like the common human these days. Wait, wait, wait. You mean like my genetics don't dictate which wine is best yeah. for me? Yes. But, um, you <laughs> yes, know, like, like one of them I always remember is that it's like, whether you're a night owl or a morning lark or something like that's actually pretty like obvious in your genetics. But I imagine since I've focused on this and it's been quite a few years and I have like what's changed, you know, what, what is actionable in terms of genetics? How are you using it at wild health? It what is the frontier. It, it really, really is. is. Blood panel and genetics, man, it gives you a lot of info. Yeah. Yes. And is constantly evolving. And, you know, there's what we look at, mainly at Wild Health are things called SNPs, which are single nucleotide polymorphisms. So those are just small genetic variations that change, you know, the efficiency or the function of certain proteins or enzymes. And depending on the SNP that you have, you may be at higher risk or lower risk of, you know, whatever trait. So for example, we look at a whole host of SNPs that have to do with how well your body may tolerate fat or carbs or saturated fat in your diet. That's one where I've been very impressed is, you know, in how those can guide dietary changes and how positively people have responded to them. I add zero fat to anything because I do not tolerate fat at all. Yeah. I mean, Kelly and I, did. we actually got that. We both don't tolerate fat well. And we learned that information like right when Bulletproof Coffee was like all the rage and, you know, and I was and like, Kelly oh, and I are like, okay, yeah, yeah. That is not, not for us. Like we can't, that's not a nutrition strategy based on our Keto genetics. Is my we nightmare. Can... Well, yeah. And that's, that's the thing when you have such strong 
pushes for different dietary trends like keto or paleo or vegan or carnivore, like all of these diets. And, you know, the average person doesn't know what to do because it's so confusing and everybody thinks theirs is right. And, you know, the truth is that we're all different. So, you know, some people are going to respond really well to a keto diet and others probably aren't. And the best way to know is to do the experiment on yourself, obviously, and see how you feel and how you perform and what your numbers look like. But if you can look at your genetics and it can give you a little bit of an idea of where to start or, hey, you know, maybe keto might be good for you or it might not be good for you, it can help guide those decisions and ideally help you get closer to your optimal diet with less of these end of one experiments. So one of the questions a lot of people ask me who don't have the budget or aren't quite ready to like jump into the, you know, personalized physician model is, well, you know, what should I ask my primary care care physician to do for me as far as a blood panel? You know, and obviously there's the basic stuff like cholesterol and, you know, some of the basic stuff. But like, is there some blood test? Is cholesterol basic? I don't think so. Well, yeah, but is there, you know, are there like, are there some blood tests that you all are doing that you have now come to think everybody should be following because they can, you know, predict, you know, you can see trends and interesting changes that are important that maybe people should ask their primary care physician to run for them. Yeah, for sure. I think, and it totally depends on how, you know, open your primary care physician is to ordering these. But I think when it comes to cholesterol, I think they're probably even more important than cholesterol when we're looking at cardiovascular disease risk would be inflammation. So a general inflammatory marker like CRP would be helpful. And it's easily something that a primary care doctor could order. And that would be C-reactive protein? Mm -hmm. I'm not a doctor. Just because it's one general marker of inflammation, so it doesn't tell you what's inflamed or why you're inflamed, but it just lets you know there's some inflammation going on, and a lot of things can cause it. So if you do a hard workout the day before, it could be high just because of that, or if you've got a bug or something, it could be high because of that. But if it's consistently elevated, it gives you an idea that maybe there's something underlying going on. And also, just because it's normal or negative doesn't necessarily mean you don't have any inflammation, but it's, it's something that can be useful if it's high. So that's one. Another one, which I think is important and many primary care doctors will look at, but there's a lot of controversy about this is vitamin D. I think if you're not, you know, I think most people can probably just go ahead and supplement because most people are naturally low, but I think it's important to know your numbers. Right. And so I would prefer to check and then know and recheck after you're supplementing, I think others that that can be helpful, something called homocysteine, which is a marker of methylation, which is an important process. And when that's elevated, it's also associated with a lot of chronic disease risk, cardiovascular disease risk, Alzheimer's risk, things like that. So that's something that you would want to know about. And there's, you know, ways that you can lower it. And then, you know, other cardiovascular disease risk markers, your basic lipid panel will tell you some. If you can get an advanced lipid panel, that will tell you a little bit more. And then there's other markers, things like ApoB is another marker, which is even more probably associated with cardiovascular risk, which isn't always commonly checked. Awesome. I mean, that literally is a question people ask a lot. They're like, okay, I'm not going to do what you're doing, but what should I, you know, let me see if I can take a swing at asking my own primary care physician. And, you know, I think you're right. It just depends on, you know, the physician and if you could wave your arms, would you? how many times a year would you have someone get a blood panel? 
So me personally, I mean, it depends on how often you're changing things. Like if you're an athlete and you've got big swings in your training cycles and seasons, I think you probably want to check with those. But if you're generally, you know, your habits are generally about the same throughout the year and you're pretty steady state, I think checking them once a year is great. But then obviously anytime you're going to change, change something, change a supplement, make a big change to your diet, you would probably want to recheck also. You know, I think everyone's like diet and exercise. And of course the old CrossFit joke is which diet and which exercise. <laughs> but one of the things that I think everyone agrees with now is, hey, sleep is important and stress is important. And as you are able to have these conversations with your patients, how much do you think some of these environmental switches that you're able to leverage and get people to be aware of, how has that impacted people's health? Has that shocked you that when you actually get people to track their sleep and some of those things and their steps that they, they trend better and, and you're like, wow, this medicine thing is kind of simple. Like, you know, you're in a really toxic relationship and you don't <coughs> eat and you don't sleep and you're drinking a ton and you look like crap. You know, it's interesting because our bodies are so resilient, especially when we're younger and we often don't even realize how poorly we feel until we start to make some of those changes and start feeling better. But yes, I think, I think at the core sleep is such a foundational, I think more important than exercise, more important than nutrition. It's so foundational. And I see, can you say that again for the people in the back, please? I don't think they heard you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Sleep. I, I think sleep's more important than exercise and nutrition, but they're all important, but yes, can make, I mean, I see it in myself. I see just how sensitive I am if I get a few nights of poor sleep and just how that affects, you know, how well I'm able to think my emotional state, you know, so many little things throughout the day that then have an impact and sort of snowball. So sleep is very foundational. And I think there are so many small things that you can do that have a big impact on sleep. And this is where, again, I think the data is really helpful in people in helping people to see the impact of sleep. I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to that quit or not quit, but dramatically reduced their alcohol intake after tracking their HRV because they were able to see the impact that it had, myself included. Well, I never drank that much alcohol to begin with, but I I saw when I did the big impact on my HRV and it was very eye-opening. Yeah, Juliet and I really, we stopped drinking. We've talked about this a lot, but we stopped drinking. Not that we don't enjoy a margarita, but it really messes us up for days. Like we're like, we, we're like, are we that fragile? Like, are we that, like, we are weak flowers now that I can't have a margarita and I'm like, I sleep like crap and, you know. Well, that's why, that's why Lisa, who's off screen right now, I'm determined is going to live until she's 110 because she got an aura ring and it really doesn't matter what she does to herself. She gets like a perfect, she's like the greatest HRV and she gets a green literally every night, no matter what she does to her body. I mean, she could drink like six tequila shots and she would get a green. So I was like, I was like, when I'm reincarnated, I want to come back as Lisa with her genetics because, you know, but she's an outlier. She's an outlier, I would say. Um, what are you thinking about reading, working on personally right now? I mean, you, obviously you're an entrepreneur, you're a crazy physician, you're a superstar. Like, what are you thinking about in your own practice, books, things like that? That's a great question. Well, I would say I am most interested, mostly because of my own path over the last couple of years that has really opened my eyes to how important our emotional health is to our overall health. And so that has been a deep 
dive for me on the personal side and something that I'm also trying to bring in for my patients because it's one of those things. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> Where would you send people to start to think about something like that? Because that's, it's so... Well, and then can I just cut that question off though and say, um, we talked about this a little before we started recording, but maybe you could give us a little more detail because you've obviously had a lot of life change in the past couple of years that has driven this sort of look into the emotional side. So maybe whatever context you'd feel comfortable sharing. Well, I mean, I think it relates a lot to what we were talking about before, where I was really busy doing all these achieving things like going to medical school and competing in the CrossFit Games and just go, go, go. And I think my whole life, perfectionist tendencies, like had done gymnastics growing up and my whole life was always just go from one thing to the next and you just do, you do well at that. So good job. And now go do the next thing. And I never really, a few things happened. One, I was, I was constantly chasing these achievements Two, I was often, I think doing more what was expected of me as opposed to what was really, what I really wanted I think I saw that even where I, where I experienced a lot of difficulty in that first year of med school and competing in the games, I had a lot of trouble there because I hadn't really figured out for myself why I wanted to do both. And once I did figure that out, I, you know, things got a lot better. And then because of that, I was so wrapped up in what I was doing and I was so busy that I really wasn't investing the time into my relationships that I wish I would have. And so I didn't have those people around me that I was in a position to really listen to and to be able to give me the real advice that I needed to hear in some of those moments where I was making big decisions. And so I think that led me down a path of one decision that I made, which was a relationship that I was in, which, you know, looking back, there was moments where I might've made a different decision had I listened to the people around me or had I been strong enough to sort of kind of like stand up for myself or what I, I knew or I believed in. And then when I finally finished residency and for the first time, I think in my life that I had a lot of open space to really stop and reflect and think, I realized, you know, I started asking myself these questions. I started doing a lot of investigation and it's not something that like comes to you over, you know, a Sunday of contemplation and journaling like this stuff <laughs> takes like weeks and weeks to allow, you know, allow it all to settle and to really start to to think. And, you know, a lot of different things that I was doing during that time of, you know, journaling, counseling, reading, you know, all kinds of things, just situations that happened that brought a lot to the surface and helped me realize some things that had happened and reconnecting with old friends, repairing some relationships. And in the process of doing that, like realizing, you know, what were these things that had led me down this path, which I didn't necessarily, you know, wasn't really happy about had to make some hard decisions, you know, ending that relationship and going into a period of a lot of uncertainty. Like at that point, I didn't know I was working for wild health. I really didn't know what my next step was going to be. And I come from a background of wanting to have the next five or 10 steps planned out. So it was very uncomfortable, but in that discomfort, I think it allowed me to really finally allow myself to feel a lot of emotions that I had been keeping walled off for a long time. I think for so much of my life, I had been, 
you know, always done well and always, you know, achieved these things and was very much of the attitude, like, just keep pushing through, like, don't, you know, don't express emotion. I think in CrossFit, we do a really good job of ignoring feelings of pain and just pushing through. And that allows us to be successful. And I think I had done that in other areas of life too. Julia is kicking me under the table because you're telling my life story too. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think a lot of people go through similar experiences. I think that's like part of our evolution in life. But for me, it then opened this sort of floodgate of emotion that I was like, what is all this stuff? I haven't felt it before. And so then it's been this process of figuring, figuring it all out and I'm still figuring it out, but it's been, you know, incredibly rewarding. I mean, experiencing so much happiness and joy and just freedom and, you know, comfort in who I am as a person but then also experiencing a lot of the harder emotions, which are difficult and just having faith that those are temporary and they're just trying to you know, tell you something. And one that's been really fun is anger, which is not something that I've ever traditionally experienced a lot in my upbringing or life. And so that's been a fun one to just embrace and learn about and you know, just feel all of it. <laughs> I have and- this feeling called anxiety now, which is very strange. And Juliet's always like, hey, I think you're nervous. I'm like, no, I'm not. Okay, maybe I am. So thank you for sharing that, by the way. And tell me a little, or I think this was what Kelly was getting at when I cut him off, but how are you taking, you know, these lessons that you've learned over the past couple of years, having these gigantic life transitions and sort of focusing on this emotional side of your health that maybe you hadn't as much before? How are you using that in your practice? It's something I'm constantly exploring and trying to learn because it's hard, especially, you know, when you're meeting someone over a video. But I think, I think for me, it's something that I always want to try to ask about and always try to emphasize the importance of, and just normalize, like, just like we talk about, you know, sleep and nutrition and exercise and, you know, this sort of falls in the stress bucket, but, you know, it's, how is your emotional health? Like what are the, you know, the things that are, these are all stressors, whether it's relationships, whether it's, you know, emotions that you are not expressing conversations that maybe you want to have, but are not having whatever that is, it all impacts our health. And we know there's this whole field of psycho neuroimmunology now where we know very clearly that our thoughts impact our physiology and impact, you know, our risk of chronic disease down the road. If we're constantly living in a fight or flight state or having these, you know, thoughts that trigger us to be in a more sympathetic state all the time that can lead to health problems down the road, whether it's autoimmune disease or heart disease or Alzheimer's. So I think that it's something that I try to talk about with you know, my patients. And then we, I think we do a great job at Wild Health. Every patient also works with a health coach and we do a great job of just supporting and providing that holistic care. So whether it starts with something like breath work or meditation or journaling or, you know, tapping, I did a webinar about tapping for our patients a couple months ago. (laughs) There's so many different tools that we can use to help, help people work through that. You don't sound like a doctor anymore. You sound like a physician. Pretty amazing. (laughs) What this makes me think of is Kelly and I were at some conference like five years ago and someone put up a slide and it's always stuck with me where it was like, you know, these sort of health behaviors that impact longevity. And number one 
And like, it was far and away above exercise and nutrition in particular, which is what I remember. Sleep was probably number two, but number one was like, do you have happy, healthy relationships? And like that fact alone was like the, in whatever data this guy was looking at was like far and away the number one thing that predicted longevity and health was, you know, healthy, stable relationships. I always think about that. And I just, we talk about this in our, about that when you were talking surgery protocols, healing protocols where people get injured and I'm like, do not leave the CrossFit class. Do not leave, go do your low level rehab, whatever you're doing, do it in the context of the group. So you don't cut yourself off from your support network, because how are you going to heal if you're a stressed animal cut out from the herd? I mean, even that simple thing where you, your sense of self gets, you know, is challenged. It's Mm -hmm. huge. And then if you don't have those resources, it gets even harder. Totally. I'm a big fan of the blue zones and I love this concept that's called it's, I think it's an Okinawan concept. It's called Maui's where people have basically groups of five friends that they disagree or like, these are our friends for life. It's basically like your family, but they're your friends. And I love that. I think that's the same concept of you are the, some of the five people you spend most of your time with. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be a ton of people, but knowing who those people are, who are your people in your community and are going to be able to be there for you, but also speak truth to you, I think is incredibly important. What if I have to spend most of my time with Juliet's best friends? I, Lisa <laughs> and Margaret are, You're stuck and with plus them. you, I'm like, I have like and room plus, for one more friend. Yeah, pl- yeah, exactly. Oh, man. You're like, that's it. That's it. You're hey, fine. You are talking a ton here and we can pick your brain. You have a podcast too, where can people find that podcast? What, what's that called? Yes. My podcast is called Pursuing Health. You can find it on all of the podcasting platforms. That's amazing. What's next for you? Oh, I don't know. I just take it one day at a time these days. That's, <laughs> That's so good. zen of you. That's so zen. I love it. Julie Fouché is dead. Long live Julie Fouché. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I'm like, that is so zen. And uh, how do I get you as my personal physician? This is This is what I want to get to the bottom of. Well, anyone who's interested in signing up for Wild Health, you can just go to wildhealth.com. So you could do that also, Kelly. And uh, we do have all of our physicians and health coaches are, you know, living what they preach. So active, you know, very um, involved. Most of them are doing CrossFit or other, you know, sports, weightlifting, whatever it may be. And so I think if that's something that's important to you, we definitely have that. But wildhealth.com, you know, just go to sign up and sign up. That's all you do. And we have a... How many times has your physician been wickedly fitter than you in your whole life? Can you think, both of you, can you come up with one time? Never. Never. That's bananas. That's super bananas. I don't know if I'm wickedly fitter. As I was, we were talking before this, we just did a Murph prep workout and it was pretty embarrassing. So <laughs> don't have too high of expectations there. That's been the the story of my um, CrossFit career is I'm like, wow, I have a personal worst every year. Like I'm just getting every year I'm getting worse and worse, but, but you I've, move I've, better. But you know, you're... whatever I've accepted it. I no longer, I don't, I no longer care. We're just trying to, trying to like keep that curve as high as possible as we age. Right. That's right. Oh, I was just going to say, if you do sign up, you can use a code Good health. There's a place for a discount code. If you put in good health, that'll give you 30% off. Wow. Oh, awesome. Thank you very much. So besides pursuing health podcasts, where else on the socials or otherwise can people find you, learn more about what you're up to as a human? I am mostly just on Instagram at Julie Fouché, just first and last name. 
that is mainly where you would find me and my podcast. That's pretty much it. You're so old school, not even on TikTok. Doc, how are you going to help the next gen if you don't even like, my kids even go on on the gram? I was just talking to my sister about this before we started actually about how I'm not on TikTok. Maybe someday. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll get there. Julie Fouché, okay. thank you, thank you so, so much, much for being for here. On. Thank you guys for having me. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.